Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis, the editor, and with me is my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Good to be here, Paul. In today's episode, we'll be bringing you some views on what we've discovered at the P3 Hub and P3 Awards events, which took place in New York in October. Jonathan will give some background on his visit to the World Bank. And there might just be time for another appearance from Dealsworth with a few of the lighter bits from the industry. There's only one place to begin, and that's the P3 Awards 2022, which was held at the Hotel Edison just off Times Square in New York on October the 11th. It was a great night, and I encourage you all to check out the website for the winners, p3awards.com, where you can also download the Book of the Night, which provides information on all the winners and some thoughts from the judges. Before we go any further, I'd just like to name check a few of the big project wins. In the US, we saw the Fargo-Moorhead flood diversion project and the DC Smart Street Lighting Scheme take home some of the top prizes. And I think it's worth mentioning these because I think it demonstrates the diversity of projects that's now emerging in the US and their use of P3. It's no longer just a transportation industry. Yeah, definitely. I think this is a trend that we're seeing just emerging year on year. Last year, we had schools for the first time in the US. This year, we've got lighting coming out. And I actually hear there's going to be more schools. So you're seeing this broadening and also solidifying. Also, broadband, that's one of the big hot areas. That was the first winner, I think, at the P3 Awards, the NC's DOT's 600-mile broadband project. It's all just expanding the definition. It's not going to be one particular style of P3s, but that's the way that our industry is moving. It's bigger, it's more, and it's changing. I think that's for the good. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think actually that was something that was kind of reflected really earlier in the day at the um, hub conference that we held alongside the Association for the Improvement of American Infrastructure, or AIAI. There was some uh, quite a lot of talk really in the room about what is the definition of P3, what falls inside and what falls outside. And I think it's a conversation that is evolving and you know, there was a, a certain recognition in the room that P3 may no longer mean kind of what it did five, ten years ago and be a very specific definition. I think it's getting much broader and being able to expand into different areas. I think that's going to be very necessary as America moves into different areas, moves into energy. The energy transition is so important and actually having a, a kind of rigid definition of P3 might not work in those circumstances. Yeah, definitely. And I think it just goes on with that, that you've got what a public-private partnership is, can be in, in many, many forms, as long as you've got public and private actually in partnership. But at the moment, sometimes we get a little bit fixated on having, say, the operation and maintenance as well as the design, build, finance, or in which order the procurement goes, does it have to go through the rigid kind of RFQ, RFP. But what matters is that you've got this arrangement that delivers infrastructure over the long term. And at the moment, we're seeing the need for that and the conditions for these partnerships to grow. It would be a real mistake for our industry to limit itself just to one definition, which came out of the UK a while ago. It doesn't have to be the same form everywhere around the world. Yes, I think Actually, that UK experience is, is quite interesting because I think that's something that we don't see anymore in the UK is a kind of rigid definition of P3 or you know, the, the PFI model. Successive governments have looked to modify that model and change it over time and adapt it. And I think 
coming out of that as well is actually a more focus from local authorities who are taking that model and using it in different ways, expanding it, and taking different parts of it. And that's certainly something that I think the rest of the world has started to do as well, mm-hmm. whether that's in Europe, whether it's further afield in Asia, uh, Africa, some emerging markets that are using P3, but not as someone who started doing P3 in the late 1990s might have considered it back then. But actually, you know, the, the kind of the tools that are used and the way in which it's structured is different, but similar. And I think that's probably what we're going to see a lot more in the US, different states doing things slightly differently, maybe municipalities doing things differently as well. Yeah, I think we hear PPPs being or P3s being referred to as a tool, but we should start thinking of it as a tool belt that you've got all of these different ways of doing it and you use the most appropriate risk sharing or elements of it on what the project demands. We've seen how the limitations of sometimes where it's a programmatic approach, as long as it's the right tool for the right job, as the adage goes, then yeah, I think we're in for a really interesting period where we could see a lot of different innovative methods deliver some really interesting projects. Yes, certainly. I think one theme as well that sort of kept coming up both at the hub and and generally actually when you speak to people at the moment in the US is the role of smaller infrastructure projects and how to get P3s involved in some of those smaller schemes that often you know don't necessarily stack up financially on their own as a project due to their scale and I think there's some interesting conversations being had around how that can be overcome, whether that's through bundling projects or whether it's through actually de-risking and reducing the cost of those initial setup fees effectively for a P3 on some of those smaller projects. I know this is something you've been thinking about as well. Yeah, we're seeing them more and more. We've seen, especially over the last year, when we've got such volatility and supply chain issues that signing up for a multi-billion pound or dollar light rail projects is just very very hard to work at the moment there's a lot of risk involved in that and i'm wondering whether these smaller projects are a response to that so let's deliver these projects which are more workable in the near term and you know the need for them is just the same you've got authorities around the world say if taking the us particularly who are under fiscal constraints they need to get whether it's a fire station or police stations they need to get this infrastructure built and they're struggling with the impact of inflation just the same as the industry is so it would be interesting to see how these smaller projects cope with say the need for advisors and the cost that can be and also the cost of capital whether it's the right fit but it's certainly a burgeoning environment that we didn't see a couple of years ago yes i suppose there's um there is that issue of risk sharing isn't there which i think is always well it is always a big part of any uh, decision on a project and clearly the bigger the project the bigger the potential risk and you know the current economic environment that has its own challenges as well perhaps even more so than in quotes normal times whatever they might look like um but it's definitely something that we're going to look into further in the um in the coming months on the website I think another hot topic that came up was the question, perhaps not unrelated to the previous one, of value for money um, and what that looks like in different projects. And I think that actually goes back to the interview you did, Jonathan, with QC uh, for a recent podcast on this issue. 
So it's probably one for you to sort of talk about. Yeah, sure. For those who um, haven't heard it yet, I spoke to the Build America Center's leader, King Bin Sween. He's an academic at Maryland, but he's also been put in charge of the US DOT's center. And they're doing lots of different work and value for money. They're taking a real crack at that. They're bringing together all the different stakeholders to try and come up with a framework for putting an almost definitive answer to value for money. The impact that could have would be massive. And he even states that if this could be solved in the US, it could be solved and applied around the world. As we spoke about before, sometimes you do have the politicization. There's a lot of myths around PPPs as well. And having this, especially as it comes from a federal source, could be a real game changer. If you can have a cold, hard assessment that says, you know, this is indicating that the project will be value for money. That rationale is, is almost case closed in a lot of cases. Yeah, and it obviously, I think the idea of what people were talking about as well is, is creating a level playing field so that actually as an authority, you know, one of the, the difficulties that authorities have at the moment is when they look out at the kind of the field of different procurement options that are out there, it's less of a field really and more of a kind of a jungle with, you know, it's very difficult to see what is the best option. I think the idea that you can have a clear, transparent value for money analysis that sort of runs across all the different types of models and options that are out there would really make a difference for the authorities to make clear choices. The idea that you have a kind of value for money assessment up front that is transparent and clear and that sort of is level across all the different options, I think that would be um, be quite important and quite valuable for authorities. Definitely. I mean, Every project is, is going to have its own idiosyncrasy. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it copes with that. But that as a framework could be amazing. And as I said earlier, the fact that it's going to come from a federal source. And we've seen places like the World Bank, you know, bring that legitimacy. But a value for money assessment from the US DOT would also remove those sometimes doubts that some people have about the current value for money with some people suggest aren't completely reliable and are sometimes skewed towards favoring P3s. But, you know, it's a long way to go. The Build America Center has to bring together a lot of different stakeholders and get some consensus. But it's great to see that these questions are actually being tackled, that they're not just being left unanswered, that this is a moment where you're going to see so many of these projects come through over the next 10 years, that this is a chance to really embed some new principles and new ways of doing things and really legitimize the model and allow it to be a conventional tool not an alternative method yeah certainly i think obviously one thing we talked about in the qc episode actually wasn't it was the uk experience of p3 pfi being sort of seen to be a skewed model in that you know a lot of the um the sort of value for money assessments and things that were done the implication was that there was a skewing towards favoring the PFI model, not least because, you know, from a political point of view, back in the mid-2000s, the, the health secretary of the time said, it's PFI or bust. So from a political point of view, there's a huge amount of pressure there to make sure that the value for money option yeah. turns out to favor PFI. But again, I guess my sort of concern around this is where I think you're going to run into difficulties is value for money can be a very quantitative assessment. 
just focused on the numbers. I think what you have to bear in mind is that in reality, when you're talking about any sort of infrastructure project, whether it's a school, whether it's a road, whether it's um, mixed use housing and retail development, that a big part of the value in that project is not actually in the numbers, is not actually making it the cheapest option, is making it the best option for the community. And that might mean, in fact, you end up spending more money than the numbers might ideally suggest if you just go on a numbers kind of analysis to get the best outcome for the community. So there's a big question there, I think, within value for money, how do you factor in the social value that this project is meant to be providing as well? So, yeah, there's still obviously plenty of work to do, I think, around that. But it's um, it's definitely an exciting idea. And, And as you say, really good that people are having those conversations now. And I don't really understand how you factor in those larger movements. Because if you take in the US at the moment, we see electric vehicles being really heavily promoted with all different kinds of subsidies and legislation coming out. Now, the value for money assessment on those projects has to work, but the government is trying to affect a complete modal shift in the way that society works. That might not be value for money, quote unquote, in the near term. You're paying to change that entire system so it's going to be really interesting to see how that gets factored in because the federal government are clearly willing to pay a price to effect that change yes and pertinent you mentioned electric vehicle charging that was another topic that came up in the p3 hub a session that i sat in on was discussing the issue of ev charging infrastructure and actually went to the heart of kind of the role of p3s in that area i think Certainly at the start of the conversation, there was a feeling that perhaps P3s aren't best suited to EV charging infrastructure, that actually there are other models out there, whether it's you know purely private sector play, a real estate kind of approach, that they may be more appropriate than a kind of typical P3. But actually, I guess this comes back to the conversation we had kind of at the start where we're talking about what is a P3. And I think as the discussions continued, it became clear that in a wider P3, there may be roles for those kind of approaches. But I think, interestingly, one of the big things that for me that came out of that conversation was that there are kind of effectively two separate ways of looking at EV charging infrastructure. One is more of a corridor approach, which is more of a state-led way of delivering infrastructure and comes from the federal government requirements through the EV charging investment that the federal government is trying to push. And this is whereby you you take a major road and provide EV charging facilities dotted all the way along that. There was a clear feeling in the room that that's not something that the DOTs should perhaps be working on, Um, not least because they never provided the gas stations when vehicles were first sort of starting to uh, become the norm that was something that the private sector did and did it well Um, so DOTs are not really experienced in that kind of provision and perhaps it's not really the best way of using their expertise while on the other hand in more urban settings you've got increasing policy requirements to change your fleets from gas-powered buses to electric vehicles and to deliver those 
and someone in the room said, buying the buses is not the hard part. The hard part is providing the infrastructure to make sure that they are able to run. And to do that, you need to have some sort of electric vehicle charging base, which, you know, lots of these transit authorities will have a hub or depot where they've previously held their buses. They just need to upgrade those to provide the charging facilities that will enable and ensure that their buses are able to run, you know, in some cases, 24-7, really. So that situation really lends itself to a P3. You've got a, a defined area. It's usually publicly owned. It's in need of an upgrade. That kind of fits a P3 model. And I think um, that's probably where you'll see quite a lot of these P3s coming through. So, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting session. And actually watching the evolution of the debate was quite interesting going from, I'm not sure that P3 is is useful for EVs through to, well, it can be useful in these circumstances and there may be other circumstances as well. Yeah, definitely. I've heard some people say P3-ish may be an appropriate model for this. But it's just, like as you said, it's going to vary from project to project. What's good is that this whole conversation is almost in its infancy, that this allows for that innovation to come in and for the right model to work. And as you said, if you've got one state DOT might be trying to get EV charging out to rural communities and connect people to that grid or you might have another authority is in charge of a urban densely populated area they're not the same project they might have the same ultimate car plugging into it but they're completely different and it's just an exciting area to see how this unfolds it's clearly one of the hottest areas in our industry and I've spoken to numerous investors and they're all looking to get involved in this so there's going to be a lot of projects coming through as I think we're seeing the inflation reduction act and the NEVI funding it's all coming together to create a really really fertile ground as I said before a complete modal shift in the way that we travel that is going to yield a huge amount of projects there's going to be an area for everybody who wants to be involved to be involved yes and i think you mentioned uh, the rural aspect as well and that again is something that people are thinking about at the moment because of the experience of rural broadband i think you know there has been since the pandemic greater policy focus on ensuring high speed high quality internet provision to everyone everywhere and what those policy drivers have shown up is the fact that obviously the private sector has not gone to those areas where there is not a profit to be made. So there is a need for some sort of P3 or some sort of arrangement that encourages private finance into those areas and to get the broadband to the rural communities. And the same is going to be true for EV charging. And I think that's something that I think a lot of people are hoping to learn from the experience of broadband to find ways to make sure that you don't end up with a two-tier electric vehicle system of the people in rural communities having to rely on their gas-powered trucks because that are aging because they can't buy any new ones, um, just simply because there's nowhere to charge their new EVs. So that's definitely something I think people are mindful of at the moment. Now, Jonathan, while I was in New York, you were in DC. Uh, you were speaking at a World Bank conference. So how was that? It was fantastic. Such an interesting arena to be involved in. As you said, I, I was moderating a session 
as part of a conversation on delivering sustainable infrastructure investment at a time of crises. And when I was setting out this stall, you realise the kind of picture that we're really in. We've got multiple crises overlapping, whether that's war in Europe, an energy crisis, you've got a climate crisis in the background, both long-term ecological and also the near-term devastating weather cycles we're seeing in countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan. And then at the same time, you've got a fiscal crisis after the pandemic and infrastructure really is at the heart of helping to alleviate all of these crises. And at the same time as delivering more infrastructure, the conversation was around delivering better infrastructure. And it was all kind of centered around these new metrics that we've got to govern the success of the infrastructure that we build, whether that's the social impact or the governance, the resilience of it. It's a really interesting time. We had a few ministers from around the world in emerging markets. It looks like PPPs are going to play a really crucial role, but there is work that needs to be done, especially around the risk elements to make these projects workable. But the very clear message from the financial sector is that this is not a financing problem. There's a lot of money looking to go from donor countries into these developing economies and also from you know, global financial institutions. But there's a lack of bankable projects and emerging markets need help to create the enabling environments to create these projects. And once that happens, hopefully the financial floodgates will open and we'll get real meaningful infrastructure being built around the world. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? And I think the World Bank obviously is playing an important role in that. And yeah, I think the delivery of infrastructure is, as you say, crucial to sort of helping tackle a lot of the problems that the world faces. And whether that's new infrastructure, whether it's making existing infrastructure more resilient as we deal with climate change, it's going to be such a big part of the future and yeah governments are not going to be able to do that on their own by any means so using private finance is important i know you see sometimes sort of criticisms of the world bank and others for their focus on p3s and other forms of kind of partnership models to get private finance into these emerging markets but realistically there's not an awful lot of alternatives is it you know, the, the, i'm not quite sure what those criticizing that approach would would suggest instead because the world bank has a finite amount of money the the governments have finite amounts of money they need the private capital which is there and available to help them and actually a lot of them need the private expertise as well yeah that can come with that definitely i mean we saw just recently trinidad and tobago some of their leadership said that they were going to be using p3s not because they particularly wanted to but the fiscal environment that they're in is difficult and they have real need for infrastructure. They particularly mentioned um, flood defences, which we see a lot of small island developing nations really struggling with due to climate change. Those problems aren't going away. They need that infrastructure right now, but they can't do it through the conventional methods. And our industry needs to be able to respond to that. Yes, and it's not just emerging markets, really, is it? I mean, we've seen... Here in the UK in recent weeks, you know, there's been such turmoil and in the financial markets through what the partly what the government has done and partly what the global situation is, that there are serious issues that governments cannot resolve on their own. I think, you know, we saw the latest Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was I think the fourth in as many months uh, in the UK, 
who basically cancelled the vast majority of the administration's previous economic policy, you know, really solely because the markets didn't like it and the economy in the UK was kind of imperiled really by what had been planned on the tax front. I think the bright spot there was that the uh, infrastructure community saw policies around investment there sort of untouched. But I think there's a big question there around what comes next and how much investment the UK government can afford, which then raises the question of, well, should they be looking at more private finance, more private investment? It's something that they've kind of moved away from over the last decade in many areas. But with so little money apparently available, you have to ask the question, well, at what point do you stop avoiding PFI or private finance and start putting money back in with the help of the private sector? But yes, after all your exploits in DC, you headed over to New York to join us at the awards, Jonathan. And before we all headed out the next day, very early in the morning to fly back to London. So I think for us, New York certainly lived up to its name as the city that never sleeps. Now, I think it might be time to mention the character that's been lurking in the shadows of our studio once again. So our resident hack, Hackett P. Dealsworth, joins us, no doubt to bring us more news from the underbelly of the PVP world. So Hackett, what have you got for us this week? Well, Paul, as someone who lives in London, I've got something that might be of interest to you. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've heard on the grapevine that Transport for London might be considering using the PPP model for its long-discussed Bakerloo line extension. That would be something, especially coming after the launch of the Hammersmith Bridge rehabilitation a few months back, which is also being planned as a PPP. Yeah, that's right. Well, apparently the Bakerloo line could be delivered under a model similar to that used on the Silvertown Tunnel project, although investors might not want to get their checkbooks out just yet. This project has been bouncing around for some time, and there's nothing concrete in terms of a procurement plan just yet. Well, nonetheless, TfL is almost in danger of establishing a pipeline at this rate. All we need is some regeneration joint ventures and we'll be away. Well, funny you should mention that. I think I might have unearthed a way in which the UK could boost its regeneration pipeline. That sounds promising. Yeah, well, I was reading recently about the new ferry town centre project in the Wirral. It turns out that the opportunity arose after a local resident caused a gas explosion on the now derelict site in an effort to make an insurance claim. Now, I know that gas isn't exactly cheap at the moment, but I was thinking that... I think I'm going to stop you there, Hackett. Interesting as that is, I don't think deliberately blowing things up in an insurance scam is a feasible way for new projects to be created. Do you have anything a little less um, explosive? Fair enough, Chief. Well, one thing caught my eye in the US recently. I bet you never thought the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade would have an impact on the country's infrastructure, did you? No, I certainly didn't. What's happened there? According to the Dallas Morning News, a woman in the state has argued that she can't be ticketed for driving alone in the high occupancy vehicle lane because she was 34 weeks pregnant at the time. And Texas law now says that a fetus is a person. She says they can't have it both ways and the judge agreed, ruling in her favour and dismissing the case. Hmm. Perhaps something for infrastructure planners to consider when they're creating hov and hot lanes in the future. Uh, But before we consider delving into the minefield of Roe versus Wade, I think we should probably end the podcast there. Thanks again for your time, Hackett. Cheers, Gov. Mind how you go. And thank you to all our listeners. And we'll be back soon with another podcast. 